This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Michelle Moses, producer of The Writer's Voice, in for Deborah Treisman. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Patrick Langley read his story, Life with Spider, from the February 5th, 2024 issue of the magazine. Langley is the author of two novels, Arcadi and The Variations, which came out in the UK last year and will be published here February 20th. Now here's Patrick Langley. Life with Spider This is a story about Fletcher Hardy. In case you haven't guessed, that is not his real name. He's fine with me telling his story. More than fine, he encouraged me to, on two conditions. The first is that no one be able to trace it to him. He has theories, persuasive ones, about what can attach to a name online. As for the second condition, I'll get to that later. My friend is still ashamed of what happened, basically. Not that anyone thinks he should be, me least of all, no matter what happened between us. The source of his unease, the trouble with the thing he called Spider, began in the summer of 2009. But before we get to that, some context. Fletcher and I had been friends a few years by that point. We'd met in a crowded smoking area when we were both 19 and high. That I liked him instantly had something to do with the drugs, but we only came to love each other after the come down. We prided ourselves on our taste in bands, Coil, Fugazi, and movies, Ozu, Kurosawa, and in time our connoisseurship made us devotees of each other as well. Since we were studying at different universities, Fletcher at Nottingham and me at Leeds, much of our early friendship took place on Gchat and MySpace. After he got what he referred to as a high 2-1, or not a first as I called it, in civil engineering, he landed a job at a multinational construction company, the name of which I forget, but whose head office was in Hatton Garden, London, where I also moved after finals. For my efforts in geography, I was awarded a 2-2, which my mother called a Desmond, as in 2-2. Fletcher and I had graduated into the recession, which, since I did not understand what the economy referred to exactly, much less how economics worked, felt like living at the whim of a brutal mirage. I pictured holographic skyscrapers crashing in silent processions around our ears. I attended the funeral of a school friend's father who had driven at high speed into a wall after his catering business, which had been running for more than two decades, went into liquidation. I delivered flowers in the morning, waited tables at night. In between, I wrote freelance articles, gig reviews and so on. These odd jobs paid peanuts, a large portion of which went to paying off the mortgage on an asset that I lived in, but did not own. The interest on that mortgage went to the bank, which my taxes were helping to bail out. Partly because of my job juggling, by July 2009, Fletcher and I, who texted or emailed several times a week, hadn't seen each other in something like three months. I did not know it at the time, he kept it secret at the start, but the trouble with Spider had been going on for a while. Fletcher and I arranged to meet on a weeknight. The pub was packed, warm and uncomfortably humid, every table full, condensation streaming down the windows. Fletcher was running late, which upset me. It seemed disrespectful. At the root of my sulking was fear. I worried that our friendship was over, that, having found a solid, well-paid position, the kind we used to call, semi-derisively, a real job. Fletcher had grown up, moved on. But when he arrived, my annoyance became concern. He was thin. He looked exhausted. As he perched on his stool and lifted his pint glass, I noticed that his knee was bouncing up and down at high speed. I told him to stop it. I had a weakness for telling him off. After our second pint... 
I asked if things were really as good as he claimed they were. Yeah, yeah, he said vaguely, forcing a smile. Just tired. This new job. He explained that his nine-to-five was in reality a nine-to-eight, sometimes nine, in an open-plan office with its instant coffee and potted palms, and that he was working on a major upgrade to London's sewer network. Originally built by Joseph Basil Gett, hero of industry, the chief engineer of the Metropolitan Board of Works, the sewers were in urgent need of greater capacity, bigger tunnels, essentially. There were obvious jokes to be made, and I made them. Fletcher laughed. That was all I needed. I soon forgot, or chose to ignore, how out of sorts he seemed. The only thing that bothered me when I remembered the meeting later was his gaze, how restless and motile it had been, how it darted and flickered. Throughout the evening, he kept glancing into the corners of the room, under tables, under chairs, into the shadows beneath the bar, in the murky reflections behind the upside-down bottles, as though he was looking for something. I made a note to keep an eye on him. Fletcher's parents had separated semi-amicably when he was nine or ten. His father, Larry, now lived on the Isle of Man. About once a month he would send Fletcher a screenshot of TT racing motorbikes, high-performance Japanese models from the 90s, almost always without context or comment. His mother Jody, who had remarried and moved to Dorset, sent Fletcher links to droll cartoons posted on Facebook and to the websites of restaurants she was planning to visit, as well as rambling, upbeat messages intended for other people. His younger brother was training to be a tree surgeon, his elder sister, a mother of one, was going through a messy divorce, having found out that her husband had lied to her about pretty much everything. He didn't have a degree from Cambridge, or anywhere else for that matter. He'd never been to Nairobi, let alone been stationed there by the Foreign Office. He was born in Hull, not Holland. I don't mention any of this because it explains the appearance of Spider in Fletcher's life. That was his hypothesis. Or it was his hypothesis. He later got over it. For a while, he was convinced that something in his past, which he had done or had been done to him, had cursed him. Finding no reason, no wound, he extended his retrospect beyond the horizon of birth. He must have done something unforgivable in a previous life. This was magical thinking. Given where his head was at, though, it could have been worse. A week or two after the pub, Fletcher and I went for a walk. The weather was unseasonably cool, so we set off in our coats. A fine grey rain was falling on Kew Gardens. We had the place almost to ourselves. The weather that had put the tourists off brought out the vividness of the leaves and flowers, and the tarmac paths glistened through the trees. We drifted around, taking in the wise old plants with their Latinate names, ducking into the steamy greenhouses, talking about films, music, love prospects, heartache, all the traditional subjects. Something was on Fletcher's mind. It was the same thing, I guess, that had been disturbing him at the pub. Eventually, he turned away, looking down an avenue of trees. I have to talk to you about something. I tensed for a revelation, cancer perhaps, or addiction, a death, a secret marriage, a new job, a religious conversion, the friendship breakdown I had feared. He stalled and dithered, frowning in anguish. I don't know how to start. You're going to think I've lost it. I am not the most patient person, and I grew instantly frustrated at his painful failure to speak. It was making me anxious, an unintentional power play on his part. What? It's hard to talk about. You're not talking, that's the point. It's a thing, or something. Something has been visiting me. A creature. I don't know what it is. The soft, endless rain sizzled round us as we walked. 
A couple of months before, Fletcher told me, he had started noticing strange movements, dark fleeting shapes in the corners of his vision. He didn't think much of them at first, but the shapes persisted. They moved, swift and silent, like the shadows of birds, or surreal fish swimming through the air. They could appear in any place, at any moment, in his bedroom, at a party, at work. Once, while airborne, he had seen one dancing on a wing of the plane. Or he thought he had. The shapes moved the moment he looked at them directly. He had an eye test and ordered glasses to correct an astigmatism, though it affected only his left eye. In any event, the glasses made no difference. In fact, the shapes grew more apparent. Whenever he noticed one, he felt the mild but unmistakable pulse of a complex emotion that he'd never felt at any other time, the closest word for which was dread. The trouble had really begun around six weeks ago, Fletcher said, on a hot night after work, when he had returned home late and seen something. He used that vague word again. He wouldn't be more specific, only noted that, prior to this encounter, he had begun to suspect that these shapes were not separate at all, neither flock nor shoal, but, rather, aspects of the same presence, one so fleet-footed that he had caught only glimpses. Realising this, he was reminded of how, even when he was a boy, and certainly in his early teens, he had noticed these shapes, these shadow flickers at the edges of things, and of how they had made him feel at once distant from other people and in touch with the deep roots of something shared, a collective force underpinning the social world. The difference now was one of frequency. He had never seen so many of these fluid shapes before. And this presence, if indeed it was singular, knew Fletcher in some intimate way, had peered deep into his being and understood that he was wrong, base, abject, rejected, unwell. I had never heard Fletcher speak in this vulnerable, self-pitying way before. He was doing so by way of preamble, he said, in the hope that I would understand something. Namely that, when he had arrived home that night, hung his coat in the hall, greeted his flatmate, washed his face, brushed his teeth, pushed open his bedroom door, and seen Spider standing there. He had not screamed or run away, the reason being that he recognised what he was looking at. I kicked a pebble hard ahead of us. And what was it? Spider, Fletcher said, resembled its namesake in some basic respects. It had a large central body and long flexible legs, six, not eight. Its skin was jet black, its high shine like that of plastic or crude oil. There were no eyes, ears or mouth, and yet it seemed keenly aware of its surroundings. Its legs were long and uncommonly flexible. It seemed to have no bones except perhaps its skull, which was also its body. The nomenclature was as confusing to him as the form. In any case, it didn't seem a creature native to air so much as to water. The way it moved brought aquatic predators to mind. On the night Fletcher first saw Spider at its full extent, without it darting off the moment he tried to look at it directly, it stood about as tall as he was, and its body was roughly the size of a basketball, but flatter at the top. A bit like that, he told me, pointing at the pebble I had kicked, which we had now caught up with. He was afraid that I would think him insane. At that particular moment, I did. But I also recognised that, if Fletcher believed that this creature, this something, had visited him, then in a sense it really had. Were you scared? Of course, but I knew it wouldn't hurt me. I asked him how he'd known. He shrugged and mumbled something about a sense, a presence, familiarity again. We arrived at a formal garden, its coloured crayon flower beds doubly vivid in the rain. I asked Fletcher how he'd reacted. He'd been faced with a dilemma, he said. To get rid of Spider through force would require first overcoming his fear of touching its smooth, hard-looking flesh 
and second, making noise that would attract his flatmate's attention, which, for whatever reason, shame perhaps, he could not abide. To do nothing was equally unacceptable, though, since he wanted to get some sleep, and the mere thought of closing his eyes with that something watching over him, raised up on its long, skinny legs, caused his stomach to tighten, his pulse to quicken. He stood and stared at Spider. It stared back. Then, with a flutter of its flexible legs, which, when they moved at high speed, lost their individual definition and resembled black smoke or inky water, Spider disappeared through the window with a whipping sound. It was introducing itself, Fletcher said, letting me know it was there. We looped back around to the wide, square pond and headed toward the palm house. And as we walked, Fletcher told me that, in the course of the next ten days or so, Spider made further appearances. Some were comic, others sinister, most were both. Spider perched gargoyle-like on city rooftops after dark, appeared from under Fletcher's bed in the manner of an octopus emerging from a reef, clung to the ceiling when he went for a shower, hid in the splayed leaves of a plant in the office, rifled through pages in his desk, the belongings and clothes in his room, its leg tips clacking in a crazy tap dance as it skipped from spot to spot. That Fletcher was unable to ignore Spider seemed to be the intended effect. It had come to remind him, but of what? Itself, Fletcher thought, as if to say, I'm with you, always have been, always will be. Hence the dread. It was impossible for Fletcher to socialise with Spider in the picture. Friends and acquaintances would, he felt certain, know that Spider was with him, was his. His colleagues had begun to notice at work, a few late starts, minor mistakes and so on, but he couldn't exactly quit. The recession was on, he had rent to pay. In more desperation than mirth, I cracked another joke about his commitment to building big sewers. Fletcher laughed again, weakly this time. We agreed it was time to head home. All the while he'd been speaking, I had stolen glances at the bushes, the paths, the ornamental bridges and sculptures, looking for a sign of the creature. I had seen none. I told Fletcher so. Foolishly, I thought this might bring him some relief. Instead, he told me I was wrong. Spider had been with us this whole time. As we made our way out, he pointed above our heads. I peered into the shaggy canopy of a large, handsome tree by the side of the path. Its thick trunk and branches, the dark brown bark of which was deeply furrowed, were abundant with pale green, star-shaped leaves that danced and shivered, shedding rain as they stirred in the breeze. I saw two squirrels and a magpie, that was all. Then something in the canopy caught my eye, concealed and revealed behind a shimmer of leaves. I had spotted a dark, dense shape midway up a branch, a clot of shadow or an oversized olive. Despite its featureless sheen, there was something watchful about it, intelligent, certainly. But the moment I saw Spider, if it even was Spider, it moved, rolled, dropped and plummeted to earth, vanishing behind a bush. I could not tell where it had landed. This whole sequence was over so quickly, in fact, that I began to wonder whether I'd seen it at all. A fortnight passed before Fletcher invited me round to his place. His flatmate was out, which meant we could talk freely. We ordered pizza, which we ate in the living room. Fletcher had a new approach to dealing with Spider, he said. It sounded violent, but I took his broader point. Attempting to ignore the thing had only made it stronger. But there was a problem. Whatever kind of creature Spider was, if creature was the accurate term, it was uncommonly resilient to the apparent point of indestructibility. Just the night before, Fletcher had pinned Spider down and attacked it with a hammer, raining blows on its shiny head. These did no damage whatsoever, except to Fletcher's wall. 
The hammer had bounced off Spider, spun through the air, and lodged itself in the plaster. He had tried and failed to drown Spider in the bath, and thrown it into the fire, watching the flames lick at, but not burn, its glossy black sides, and wrestled it into the microwave, where it had rotated like a luxury blob on the machine's lazy Susan, for a duration and at a temperature that would have turned almost anything else into a sputtering puddle. Fletcher had locked it in rooms, cages, cupboards. And in response, Spider would change its shape, flatten itself to an envelope, post itself through the shallowest apertures. Its sadistic harassment of Fletcher had a gleeful edge, like the jangly antics of a cartoon nemesis, Jerry to his Tom. Yet the damage it caused was substantial. Look, Fletcher said, rolling up his shirt sleeve to show me the bruises and shallow cuts that looked like they'd scar. When Spider clambered on Fletcher's shoulders at the dinner table or on the toilet, say, its sharp legs bit into the flesh of his neck, leaving love bites and nicks. As he walked, it would appear out of nowhere and headbutt him like an irate goat. It even did its thing around Suki, the teacher Fletcher had been seeing and was falling for. It hovered and loomed, waited and watched on their dates, passing in front of the desk lamp to cast spindly shadows, the gothic extent of which reminded him of that famous scene in Nosferatu when the vampire's shadow is flung across the wall, long fingers tapered like claws. Suki hadn't noticed these shapes, or, if she had, politely ignored them, but it was only a matter of time. Sometimes Fletcher woke to find Spider resting on his sternum in the manner of a night terror or a meditating crab, its black legs neatly folded under its body that was also its skull. On such mornings, Spider, bolder heavy, pinned him down. Often, after Fletcher had struggled to rise, Spider would not let go. It would wrap its flexible legs around his chest and cling there, even in the shower, and forceful attempts to remove it only caused Fletcher to injure himself. With Spider now flattened, pressed tight to his ribs like a stab-proof vest, he had no choice but to put a shirt on and go to work, inspecting technical drawings, typing up safety reports, visiting concrete plants and tunnel digs, hoping that Spider didn't slip out. It's been stressful, he told me. We'd been talking for hours. The pizza was cold, the beer was warm, Fletcher was hyper and downbeat at once, and he had an important question. I need you to help me get rid of this thing. Would you do that for me? I can't think of anyone else. I spoke to my dad about it. He said he once knew a guy who had a similar problem but couldn't remember anything else about him. That helped a bit. Then he sent me a video of a guy repairing his Yamaha YZFR1. I don't know what to make of that. I didn't hear from Fletcher for the next few days, which was a relief. Of course, I hadn't hesitated to tell him, yes, I would help him. Of course I would. That's what friends are for, to support each other, stick together, blah, blah. I'm not trying to be cynical here. I do, in fact, believe all that stuff about goodness and loyalty, as I hope certain aspects of this story will show. But I need to be clear about my limitations, at least as they were at that time. No one is perfect. I certainly wasn't. And when the desire arose to help Fletcher, the image came to mind of that something I had seen in the trees and a cold, drenched feeling washed through my lungs, at which point I wished, I actively hoped, that Fletcher would get rid of Spider on his own. In fact, I was angry that he hadn't. During intensive bursts of messaging, to which we had graduated after G-chat, Fletcher suggested that Spider might be looking for love, in the universal sense of a child, a pet, anything with a pulse. One way to think about the creature, he wrote, was to pity and comfort it. Its inability to leave him alone suggested that it didn't know how to be by itself. To embrace the thing, to kill it with kindness, might be the only way to get rid of it. The next day, however, 
After another sleepless night, Fletcher had changed tack completely. Now he wanted to destroy the thing once and for all. Everything has a breaking point, he wrote. Everything. I imagined an eyelid twitching as he typed. As if that weren't ominous enough, he told me that he had had an idea. He would be in touch again in the next few days. Soon this will be over. A week or so later, he wrote to ask for my help on a particular date. I wriggled out of it, claiming a conflict. Fletcher suggested another date. This happened twice. The third time, I found myself going along, unable to admit to my discomfort, my cowardice, hoping instead that something would intervene on my behalf. For a moment, it looked as if something really might. I arrived at Fletcher's flat on the pretext of dinner. From his bedroom came faint banging sounds. As Fletcher and I cooked and ate a stir-fry, it became apparent that his flatmate and his flatmate's girlfriend, with whom he had planned to spend the night, were fighting silently, furiously, over text. If it carried on much longer, Fletcher would have to call off his idea. But around eleven, a good three hours later than expected, the flatmate, huffing and puffing with outrage, but also visibly relieved, wheeled his bike out the front door. At which point Fletcher vanished too. He emerged a moment later and set a heavy object down on the kitchen table with a clunk. What's that for? I knew exactly what he was planning to do with it, though, had known the moment I'd seen its toothed disc. We'll get rid of its legs first, Fletcher said, speaking less to me, it seemed, than to himself, as though by reciting his plan in advance he could summon it into being. Then we'll get it into pieces and put each piece in concrete, in a separate bucket, and we'll leave it to set a bit, not properly. We won't have time to set it fully, just enough to get the process going, and then we'll get the bits into the car, and then... He went on like that for a minute or two. Clearly, he had planned this in detail, never mind that every attempt thus far had failed to leave so much as a scratch. I asked if Fletcher had got the idea by reading up on gangsters or serial killers. He laughed a little, but in his eyes was a haunted, hunted look. I just need you to hold it down, he said, while I go in with this. He picked up the angle grinder again, and the disc's sharp teeth caught the halogen's glare. The bumping noise was coming from an expensive-looking flight case that Fletcher had wrestled Spider into, and which, judging from the bumps appearing in the plastic carapace, it was steadily working its way out of, like a luggage monster attempting to hatch. Fletcher and I stood in what he generously called our protective gear, much of it from the DIY section. Plastic goggles, dust masks, yellow helmets, cricket gloves and shin guards. The shin guards bothered me more than anything. Hadn't the creature submitted calmly to other attempts to damage it, squatting quietly in the flooded bath, the microwave? And so it proved when Fletcher slowly opened the case. The thrashing had stopped. There it sat, legs folded neatly under it. The same feeling I'd had on glimpsing it, if it even was it, in Kew Gardens, a cellular intuition that something had gone very, very wrong with the world, came over me again, and I wanted to be as far away from it as possible. Ready? I nodded. We hadn't rehearsed. How could we have? But I knew what to do. Fletcher had advised me to be gentle, and I was. Squatting on my haunches, I reached for Spider as I might have for a kitten. Its upper surface, smooth and unblemished, was shiny. My reflection was distorted in it. I was looming now, not it. My outstretched hands resembled claws. Spider did not flinch or squirm when I lifted it, nor when I turned it upside down and placed it on the sofa cushion. Not even when I pressed it down so that, slowly, gently, Fletcher could place a ratchet strap over it, loose on its folded legs. The strap clicked as we tightened it, at which point Spider went berserk. The directionless fury of its legs was unlike anything I had encountered before. How to explain it? A cauldron of blur, 
a storm of liquid sabres, a bouquet of black whips, none are right. Spider's legs slashed at my cheeks and neck, cutting my lip and knocking my goggles loose. Only by pressing down with my hands and knees, with all my weight, was I able to hold Spider in place. A deafening noise filled the room. It took a moment to connect it with Fletcher, who had the angle grinder, its blade whirring, in both hands. There was a risk that he would buzz one of my fingers off, so I flinched. But through a series of nods and gestures, we communicated a plan. At a signalled moment, I would move my hand to one side, allowing Fletcher's blade to strike. And that had to be soon, much longer and Spider would shapeshift and scuttle away. I gave the nod. I couldn't tell you why the angle grinder succeeded where hammers, water, microwaves, flames and all manner of techniques had failed. Sometimes I wonder if my being there was part of the reason. But the moment the blade hit the joint between one of Spider's legs and its body, black liquid erupted like a blowout at an oil well. It was the same absolute shade as Spider's body, and there seemed to be too much of it, more than the creature's size could contain. It had the cold, silty smell of wet mud, but clean, almost steely, with none of the low-tide funk. It spattered my goggles, which were already askew, making it doubly hard to see. But through the shadow and smear, I glimpsed something on the floor. It squirmed like a landed eel. There was a banging at the door. I don't remember much of the encounter that followed, but in the midst of that awful night, it was perhaps the most surreal sequence of it all. I walked to the front door the way a sleepwalker might. Opening it, I saw a woman in late middle age. Fletcher's downstairs neighbour had come about the racket. I explained that there was a plumbing emergency and gestured wearily at my clothing, at the air the hellish grinding, thumping noises coming through the bedroom door behind me, under which black liquid was seeping. Something in what I said, or her own version of the lung-drenching feeling, perhaps, persuaded her to leave. She nodded, backed away. By the time I returned to Fletcher's room, Spider was in two halves. The amnesiac haze that descended on the rest of that night, and to some extent my next decision, can be explained with reference to the state I was in. Spider was soaking through my clothes into my pores. I had never known a feeling quite like it. It was despair of a kind, a transcendent negation of possibilities, every part of me subsumed into the dark god of an awful feeling, an iron grip that would never let go. I went around the room, bent at the knees, trying and failing to pick up one of Spider's spasming legs. Fletcher was wrestling one of Spider's halves into a net. His goggles were off. There were tears in his eyes. A realisation hit me. It felt like spotting a high window I hadn't noticed before. There was a simplicity to it, and a kind of reverse vertigo, such as a pilot might feel hitting the ejector button. I could help Fletcher finish the job, and live with that feeling a moment longer, perhaps forever. Or I could save myself. Without saying goodbye or anything else for that matter, I backed out of the bedroom and made for the door. It wasn't long before I met someone. She worked in tech and liked to climb. There was a wall in the railway arches in London Bridge that we visited nights and weekends, where I learned to boulder. For all that it demanded of the body, plotting roots was a dry, formal activity akin to playing chess, and I found it relaxing. There was something calm, almost chaste, about the place. White ceiling, blue mats, the pale, sifted texture of the air, and the soft smell of chalk where it whitened the holds, whose shapes and colours reminded me of Play-Doh. Most of all, I liked looking around and seeing bright lights, blocky shapes, reassured by these that, if Spider came for me, it would have nowhere to hide. I juggled part-time jobs, four at once for a while, and there was a phase of high-intensity partying. Our landlord wrote to say that he was hiking the rent by 15%. 
We counter-offered five. He served us a Section 21 notice, the legal mechanism to repossess his property. So we looked for somewhere else, a little farther out of town. In one specific way, if no other, I was glad of these distractions. There was a region in my mind which I did not want to look directly into. I hadn't been in touch with Fletcher since that night and did not know if his plan had succeeded. It would not be accurate to say that I felt no guilt, but my memory of Spider, how it felt to be near it, holding it, whipped by it, the desire to escape all that outweighed my remorse. Not for nothing had I nixed a long friendship without so much as a goodbye, and although I justified this to myself in myriad ways, I had no choice in every right, it was better for Fletcher to learn how to do it himself. There was no way to spin it other than as a betrayal, one compounded by my subsequent ghosting. When Fletcher wrote me messages, which he did often, as he had since we'd met in the smoking area, I ignored them, couldn't look at them, same for his calls, and the long email he wrote me, and the follow-up to that. Phone, social media, email. In theory, Fletcher could reach me anywhere and at any time, but these forms of contact also have a feature called block. Which brings me to the second condition. Fletcher gave his blessing for me to tell his story as long as I not sugarcoat what I did. I abandoned my friend at a time of great need and on a cowardly whim. I was a piece of shit. The brute abruptness of my betrayal prompted even me to wonder whether I was a bit sociopathic. Telling Fletcher's story, as far as I understand it then, is more penance than appropriation. Although Fletcher's still ashamed of Spider, my shame is worse, in his opinion. Picture me talking to you with my head and my hands in the stocks. You will of course have deduced by now that Fletcher and I got back in touch, if for no other reason than for him to endorse the story. I am glad to report that our reunion, slow and painful as it has been, and very much a work in progress, has developed into more than an exchange of conditions. Muscles grow stronger by a series of tears and breakages, after all. And so I hope it proves with us. In the end, it wasn't a change of heart, but a chance encounter that brought us back together again. It was winter by then. I hadn't seen Fletcher in months. He had given up trying to reach me. I thought about him every day, but whenever temptation arose to make contact again, I persuaded myself to wait. He was better off without me. I would do it tomorrow, and so on. It was easy to avoid the few places we had haunted, especially with the friends I had made at the climbing wall, and the scale of the city is such that anonymity is the norm. But then one evening, in the aimless, half-dead days between Christmas and New Year's, I went for a walk along the river, icy weather, fog on the Thames, at the end of which I ducked into a backstreet pub I had never set foot in before. I noticed Fletcher a moment after he noticed me. He was standing in the corner, at the bar. In his hands were two pints. He was staring with a look of such disdain, such triple distilled contempt, that my body registered it with a jolt. I lifted my hand in a hesitant wave. Fletcher shook his head once, twice. Then he turned his back and sat down at a table with a man I did not recognise. Only now that I was in Fletcher's presence did I realise what a horrible idiot I had been, how crass and extreme my cruelty. I missed him. I wanted to know what had happened that night, and since speaking to him without him approaching me first would have been out of the question, I stole glances whenever I could. From the look of him, it seemed the intervening months had been cruel. His face was drawn, he had lost more weight, and there were ashen patches under his wide, dark eyes. Frankly, he didn't look well. But something else had changed too. There was a centeredness to his movements and to the sombre concentration of his eyes as he lifted the pint. I presumed that he had succeeded in his quest, that Spider was slain, and that the process had changed and toughened him, draped wisdom about his shoulders. 
I remember nothing of the rest of that evening, only how giddy and sick I felt to see Fletcher again. I'll spare you a detailed account of the lengths to which I went to re-establish contact with Fletcher. Suffice to say that it was months before he replied to a message or answered a call, and that, when at last he did, our first encounter did not go well. It barely went at all. Fletcher arrived, punched me in the neck, kicked me to the floor, spat on me, and left. After he was gone and my dizziness had lifted, I messaged him to say that, while that didn't make us even, it was a step in the right direction, and would he care to meet again? In time we had another meeting. Trees again. Dulwich Wood. When he showed up, late, as he had been at the pub months before, at the start of it all, he had company. Prancing down the pavement behind him, bold as anything, was Spider. I thought Fletcher might deck me again. He had that look about him. Instead, he held out his hand and I shook it. Spider stood taller than either of us. Reflected on its domed head was a band of green leaves like a crown of laurels. It looked exactly as it had the two times I'd seen it, not a scar in sight. When Fletcher and I set off into the woods, it scuttled into the undergrowth. Fletcher was keen to stress how bad things had got for him after that night. He had succeeded in completing his plan without my help. He bundled spiders' pieces into nets, tied them to weights, drowned them in buckets filled with wet concrete, and let them dry overnight. The next morning, without having slept, and feeling like the world's most inept contract killer, he drove to a bridge and dropped them into the water, watching to see that they remained under, which they did. Returning home, he'd found his housemate standing furious in the corridor. Fletcher didn't know how to explain the ruination that had befallen not just his bedroom, but the corridor and the bathroom. In panic or delirium, he attributed the mess to a sex thing. The next day, Fletcher's flatmate ratted him out to their landlord. Fletcher was asked to leave. We could have found a place together, I said. Fletcher didn't find it amusing. Spider had stayed away for a fortnight. After it returned, showing up in his room without fanfare, it was worse than ever. Unbroken sleep became a thing of the past, Spider jigged and sprinted where Fletcher lay, knocked him off his feet, and caused accidents while he was chopping onions or making tea, leaving bruises and minor burns that friends and colleagues started asking about. Now Spider flattened itself to Fletcher's chest every morning. At various points it escaped, ran beside him like a dog. When this happened, people saw it. Some pulled back in disgust or alarm, Others glazed over as though they couldn't see it. A few, two to be exact, whispered their encouragement or sympathy. They had seen things like Spider before, they hissed. If anything, Fletcher's was a medium-sized one. In any case, he was hardly unique. Wasn't the world itself a spider factory? One older man encouraged Fletcher to join a support group online. When he did, Spider was with him, of course mashing the keyboard, doing cartwheels and twirls in high vaudeville style, delighting in the expenditure of energy that seemed to rise in direct proportion to Fletcher's fatigue. When he tried to eat, cereal mostly, the only thing he had energy to make, Spider would knock the bowl onto the floor, then splosh about in the puddled milk. Hence Fletcher's malnourished appearance. This had gone on for weeks. He could not ignore Spider, and he had given up trying to kill it, which allowed for a new relation, something akin to intimacy, death by kindness after all. Spider felt to Fletcher like a pet. It is more than possible to hate one's pet. One night, rather than dance on Fletcher's body, Spider showed me something, he said. I don't know if it was where it came from, like its home planet or whatever, or if it was a vision from the future, or something inside me, or nothing, a dream. Whatever it was, Spider wrapped its legs around Fletcher's head, blocking his vision. He found himself in midair. Far beneath him was what resembled an ocean at night. 
though it might have been an underground lake. In any event, a body of dark liquid, ink or oil, which glimmered faintly as it heaved. Fletcher began to sink towards it. He had the sense that Spider was guiding him down as though by a thread. In time, he realised that the liquid, which until this point had looked calm, was in fact churning furiously, and that the water, which may have been the same substance that had escaped Spider's body that night, was alive with creatures such as it, a roiling sea of countless spiders, a truly horrifying sight. They were thrashing and crawling and whirling about as far as the eye could see, and the image was so total, so inevitable, that it filled Fletcher with despair. Before he made contact with that liquid storm, he woke up. It must have been a nightmare, he thought, but on waking he could see only darkness. Spider had grown to such an extent that it filled Fletcher's bedroom, blocking out the window, pinning him to the bed so that he could not get up, could barely even move, which was not ideal, because he was due at the office in two hours. Luckily, if that word applies, his phone was charging right beside his bed so he could pull a sickie. There was no way he could get out of bed, let alone to his front door with what Fletcher referred to as a monstrous, sentient cannonball crushing his legs into the mattress, letting him loose only to use the bathroom before hounding him back to the mattress again. This lasted a full work week. That was a low point, Fletcher said. The woods were beautiful in the spring, the undergrowth rash with new grass and young daffodils. Fletcher's head hung low, I thought he might weep. Instead, he laughed. He'd spotted Spider goofing around on a nearby path and a dog was barking at it. We walked on. I felt an odd mixture of emotions. Guilt, shame, unavoidably those. But Fletcher wouldn't be telling me any of this if there wasn't hope that we could reconcile. But the real low point came, he said, the night I went to Waterloo Bridge. He had decided that there was only one way to end it. He had heard that drowning was a peaceful way to go, and that the currents that flow beneath the surface of the Thames at this point have such a barreling propulsion to them that once you go under, you don't come up alive. So he had set out for Waterloo around three on a Tuesday morning with a strangely elated feeling. He approached the, what to call it, railing? Parapet? As he stepped onto the concrete strip that ran along the side of the bridge, it occurred to him that he didn't know the proper word for the last solid thing he would stand on for the rest of his life, despite still working in a construction firm. The fact seemed in that moment hilarious. He peered down at the water below, the churning liquid in his nightmare, the dreamless sleep into which he hoped to fall. Soon Spider would no longer bother him. He stood on the edge, whatever you called it, and was about to step forward. I couldn't do it. Then I noticed something next to me. Spider had come along, of course, and was at his side. It seemed to be peering down at the water, just as Fletcher was. Seeing it was enough to break something, he said. He stepped back onto the pavement and sank to the ground, and Spider nuzzled his chest, at which point Fletcher realised, however odd or even sinister it sounded, that there was something comforting about Spider's presence. It had stayed with him, after all, when I had not. That meeting was several months ago. It's summertime again. A year has passed since our trip to Kew Gardens. Fletcher remains, how to put it, cautious of going back to the way things were, doesn't seem to think it's possible, but we still meet up. He's toying with the idea of a show about what happened, Stand-up, perhaps. Fletcher has this idea that Spider could be his sidekick, goof about on stage. His working title? Life with Spider. It might never get off the ground. If it does, he hopes that Spider can be persuaded to wear a pork pie hat. For now, they go around town together. You might see them. If you do, don't be afraid. Or do. I was. Still am. A curious thing has happened, Fletcher tells me. 
It might make this show of his impossible, at least in the form he had envisioned. Spider, he says, isn't always present in the form it used to be. I wasn't sure what he meant by that. When I asked him to explain, he told me that, sometimes, Spider expands to such an extent that it disappears. It becomes the sky. In doing so, it transposes itself into background, into atmosphere. All this sounded very nomic to me, so I asked him a second time to explain just what he meant. At which point Fletcher told me something I've been puzzling over ever since. A statement so rudimentary, so banal, and yet so open to interpretation as to sound like a riddle or a koan. Perhaps you can make better sense of it than I can. We were standing outside. A few clouds had gathered. Fletcher had fallen silent, thinking over my question. Then he shrugged and said, Sometimes it rains. That was Patrick Langley reading his story, Life with Spider. This is his first story in The New Yorker. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Rivka Galchen reads The Bees Part One by Alexander Hemon. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is hosted by Deborah Treisman and produced by me, Michelle Moses. Thanks for listening. <laughs>